1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. This is David Rothkopf. I am your host here in our tiny studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK here in Washington, D.C. I'm joined here in Washington by Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. We have coming to us from a studio in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Graham Allison of Harvard University and... From sunny Palo Alto, California, we have Corey Shockey of Stanford University. This is the much-touted Thucydides cage match that everybody who is a listener of Deep State Radio has been looking forward to throughout the summer, thus proving what a hopeless bunch of nerds they are. But having said that, they're just the kind of people who would buy Graham's book, Take It to Heart, and Use It to Influence the World, because after all, we are our listeners and all of us members of the deep state. Graham, I'd like to start with you, and I was wondering if you could encapsulate in a minute or two the thesis at the core of your book um, pertaining to the Thucydides trap.
2: So thank you very much and it's a pleasure to appear on the program with uh, Corey and, and Rosa. So uh, Thucydides' trap is the dangerous dynamic that occurs when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power. Uh, Thucydides wrote about this in the classical case of Athens versus Sparta in probably the most quoted uh, one-liner in Western International Relations Studies, in which he said, quote, it was the rise of Athens and the fear that this instilled in Sparta that made the war inevitable. So in this book, I look at the last 500 years, I find 16 cases in which a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power. So think of the rise of Athens, but also think of the rise of Germany and the impact it had on Britain. Think of the rise of China today and the impact it's having on the US. Of these 16 cases, 12 of them end in war, four of them in not war. So Thucydides' line about inevitable is hyperbole. But it would not be an exaggeration to say that under those conditions, there's an extreme danger of war occurring. Uh,
1: Well, who could? I mean, that is as cogent and concise a summary of this book, which I have read and I recommend to everybody, um, as as you could imagine. And and. It's not always the author who gives the most cogent and concise summary of a book, and I'm grateful for that. Corey, you've taken issue with some of the ways Thucydides and his conclusions have been characterized by many, not specifically by Graham, over the course of this past summer. And so I thought maybe you could frame your perspective on that.
0: So gladly, David and Graham and Rosa. Uh, So it's true that Thucydides does summarize his own history of the Peloponnesian Wars in that way, but I think there are two important things to remember. The first is that when he starts writing this history, he's desperately angling for Pericles, the ruler of Athens, to end his exile and let Thucydides come home. So he's putting a really nice face on the behavior of the Athenians who much more than Sparta are responsible for the war that comes. So it's, if there is a Thucydides trap, it gets sprung by the rising power, not by the established one. Uh, The second thing I would say about Thucydides is that uh, it, It is too simplistic a summary to say that a rising power is inevitably going to come into conflict with with the dominant power. Because the thing that Thucydides makes so clear time and again in in the council in Athens, in the council in Sparta, in the Mytilene example, in the Melian dialogue, is that nothing is inevitable it's human choice, it's decisions, it's a uh, populace persuading the public to make reckless choices that drive war. So I think the notion that Graham popularizes that there's somehow a mousetrap that gets sprung when the hegemon refuses to tolerate any longer a rising power, I don't think that's an accurate read of Thucydides. And when we get a chance, I would love to come back on two other points that I'd like to hear more from Graham about. One is the case selection, um, and the second is the description of China in the book. Because I think in both of those cases, there are alternative uh, perspectives.
3: Ooh, them fighting words. Yeah, and I think
1: I've just looked at Rosa, and we speak in hand signals here, and I think we'd like to cede our time here back to Graham so he can respond <laughs> to Corey's initial assertions, and then we'll circle back to you, Corey, and your other points. And then, sooner or later, Rose and I will come in and agree with whoever sounds like they're doing better.
3: I think that's, yes! a, good, I think that's,
1: that's a good plan, You are the Greek chorus, then. <laughs> Very much so. So, so.
0: so, Graham, I feel the so, need to so first, assure you yeah. that it's likelier they will support you than me because I talk to them twice a week on all these subjects.
2: <laughs> Okay. Yeah. That, that's, uh, well, they may be, that may make them more friendly or less friendly. Who knows? But in any case, so first, let me applaud Corey for taking Thucydides seriously. As I say in the, in the penultimate paragraph of the, of the book, if the only thing I can do in the book is persuade you that you should go download The Peloponnesian War by Thucydides and read at least the first book, the first hundred pages, then I will have succeeded. So Corey is a serious student of Thucydides and I applaud that. And I would say to the listeners, you you can't, uh, you won't believe if you just download The Peloponnesian War and read it. Every page will knock your socks off. If it doesn't, check your pulse. Okay. So to the points, first, uh, uh What Thucydides' proposition about, is about is not about one country – one of the parties attacking the other and when and under what circumstances. His central proposition is a fundamentally realist proposition that says when a rising power threatens to displace a ruling power, this creates – Severe, predictable, structural stress and under these conditions, it's co- it's possible a rising power will become more aggressive and ultimately become the trigger to a war. It's possible that the ruling power will become paranoid and become the source of the war. It's equally likely that some external action or some third party's action that would otherwise be inconsequential. Are fairly easily managed can serve as the trigger to a set of actions and reactions that end in a war that neither party wanted. And I think I would, if I understand uh, uh, Corey's position, because I think I've seen something she wrote separately. I think we mainly – I mainly agree with her that in this case, basically, uh, it wasn't that uh, Athens or Sparta concluded, boy, now a good time for a war. If it hadn't been for for Corinth uh, as a big source of the problem and it spat with Coursera, a third party actions that then entangled each of the parties with their allies, one wouldn't have got to the point that one got to. Now then when Thucydides looks at that, he says, yes, but the deep deep, uh, driver in all this story is a rising versus a ruling power which allows – such an otherwise inconsequential debate to become so so devastating, and I think that's actually, in my reading, what happened in 1914. So the idea that the assassination of an archduke became a trigger to a war that burned out all the houses of Europe is insane. Whenever I read that uh, that history, and when I try to do that in the chapter in the book, I still find it unbelievable. But it happened. And if I look at the Chinese American relationship today, could North Korea with what it's currently doing drag China and the US into war? That seems inconceivable, but we should remember what happened in 1950.
0: I really like the way in the book you use the example as as you just did here of a marginal spat between unimportant allies being the precipitating event that draws the two hegemonic powers, the rising and the established one, into conflict. Um, And I can see the projection of that to your policy recommendations in the book, right? Where you question towards the end whether the United States really has an interest in, in East Asia and whether we should really be so committed to the outcomes of the allies that we have in that region. And and as of course Graham, Graham describes Thucydides, it's the trigger of the whole thing, right? What Athens is saying is we should be able to behave any way we want. And Sparta, which is a tolerant hegemon, which doesn't interfere in the internal dynamic of its uh, allies, they're not predatory in the way that Athens is predatory. So basically, um, you're looking the, forward to
3: Chinese dominance of global politics. Is that right, right? Really oh, absolutely. Right? It's What's going to be the? so
0: good for us all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what, what comes through so clearly in Book 1 of Thucydides is that it is Pericles's belief that war is inevitable. Pericles, the Athenian leader— keeps saying, this is inevitable, it's going to happen anyway, we might as well take it now. That's what actually makes war inevitable. So Thucydides does not say, you know, this is the natural outcome. He says, a political leader in the rising country, a country that is xenophobic and aggressive and not acknowledging the rules by which everyone else is plaguing that that power, thinking war is inevitable, is what causes them to repeatedly be aggressive. And one of the, you know, Graham looks at 16 examples um, of established powers and rising powers. I rate the cases slightly differently. I think we there's only one example of a dominant power giving way peacefully to a rising power, and that, single case is Britain and the United States in the 19th century. And what makes that alone among all hegemonic transitions peaceful is that Britain and the United States, by the end of the 19th century, come to look similar to each other and different from everyone else. And so for Thucydides, there are no powers that are so similar ideologically that their cumulative power can be seen as a net gain for both. But that is both true of Britain and the United States by the end of the 19th century. And it's mostly true of the liberal international order that the United States began trying to create as it became increasingly dominant and then succeeded in creating at the end of World War II. So one of the challenges I would put to Graham is that I think there are several things going on that Thucydides classic that he is, couldn't capture. And one of those is the rise of liberal states which view each other in common terms and create an international order that is mutually beneficial for everyone. The second thing Alrighty. that I think is very different from from the framework Thucydides set up and that Graham carries forward. Is that nuclear weapons may also play that stabilizing force that common culture played between Britain and the United States at the end of the 19th century?
2: Go ahead, Graham. Let me. Can I jump in on the on the first point because I uh, love uh, Corey's characterization of uh, what I think is one of the most fascinating cases, namely the rise of the U.S first arrival, and then eclipse Britain at the beginning of the century, of the 20th century. And actually, I have a chapter I think many Americans will find very uncomfortable in which I try to read that through the eyes of Teddy Roosevelt, a 37-year-old who arrives in Washington in 1897 to become the number two person in the Department of the Navy. Now, Teddy Roosevelt has for a long time— been saying it's an abomination to have these foreigners in our hemisphere, especially the Spanish in Cuba. But he didn't like seeing British ships in our area either. In the decade that follows, 1897, his arrival in Washington, the U.S. first seizes on the uh, mysterious explosion in Havana to declare war on Spain, liberate Cuba, take Puerto Rico. We pick up Guam as a spoil of war to support and sponsor a coup in Colombia, create a new country, Panama, uh, who gives us the next day a contract for our canal so our ships can move from Atlantic to Pacific. Threatens war with first Germany and then with Britain, uh, unless they back out of a territorial dispute in Venezuela. And then steals the largest part of the fat tail of Alaska from the Canadians because he thinks it reminds him of Yosemite. Uh, and then declares the Roosevelt corollary of the Monroe Doctrine, which says if any country in our hemisphere behaves in ways we don't like, we'll send the Marines and change the government. And we do that every year that follows for the next decade. Now, for the Brits, this was a big event, okay, because uh, they've been accustomed to being the dominant power, including in the Western Hemisphere, for 100 years. But I think what they did, and I think – this could be a longer conversation that I look forward to with Corey, would be partly they understood the realities of the situation and distinguished between what was vital for Britain, which they thought Canada was as part of the uh, part of the empire, and what was not vital, which is playing the role they had played for 100 years in places like Venezuela. So they accommodated in areas that they could adapt and adjust. But they were able to keep hold on to the things they regarded as vital. And they did the whole thing so artfully that by the end of the process, the Americans imagined that our interests were very much aligned with theirs. Now, part of that is a reflection in the similar cultures. And there's no good out about that. But I think uh, a good part of it is in the, ma- in the, in the uh, mastery of statescraft by the British uh, statesmen.
1: Well I'd like to follow so, up if I could I, with okay Corey one one quick response nope, and then let's nope. open it up a little bit.
0: I I I agree with you that this notion of common culture is a creation that follows the strategic alignment, right? The notion of Anglo America doesn't precede the strategic convergence it follows it. I I, however, mark it earlier than you do. I think the 1895 Venezuela debt crisis, when Grover Cleveland's in office, is when that transition takes place. I knew it you were going to bring up the Roosevelt.
1: 1895 Venezuela debt crisis. You of always course bring it you up.
0: did. Yeah. I know. It's I, so I important. I think there's a special Grover
3: Cleveland bingo square. Yeah.
0: The um, drinking game. Uh, <laughs> But but Graham is right there is a period of time when the United States is becoming the dominant power in the order when we behave like a traditional 19th century European great power but it's also important to emphasize that that phase passes relatively quickly and that one of the things that I think is characteristic of hegemons is that they reshape the international order in the image of their domestic political compact. And so the United States as it grows more powerful actually be- grows more benevolent. And that's a difference from other hegemons and it's it's at least on evidence based so far a difference from the way China would behave. And that makes me think that they dominant the American dominated order Is actually a lot more resilient than Graham gives it credit for for managing a rising China.
1: Okay, so let me, Graham, I'd like to ask you a question and sort of open this out and tie it a little bit into what's going on now. If I pick up on Corey's earlier point about Pericles and him sort of pushing everything in this uh, direction of confrontation, it, it echoes a little bit of the way that some people, I think, have misused or been inclined to misinterpret your book. And I think a lot of people, including some people close to the president of the United States, have said, ah, this is proof. We are going to go to war with China, and therefore, let's get into a more confrontational stance. And so it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, uh, in that case, a a bit as it was in the case of Pericles and it's particularly dangerous when you have a U.S. leader who doesn't actually um, have a worldview and he is looking for confrontations in order to establish himself as someone of strength when in fact that is not who he is and does that worry you and have you seen that out there?
2: Well uh, yes indeed and I think uh, uh, Bannon, who uh, is a big uh, Thucydides student and who's – actually whose password uh, was Sparta before he went to the White House. So he's a big fan of the Spartan point of view and also is reported – I haven't spoken to him directly, but people I know who've talked to him at some length about this has a kind of an apocalyptic view that uh, – there's going to be a big war, and uh, China and the U.S. are the likely combatants. So he may have, you know, such a perspective. If you contrast that with people like H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, or Jim Mattis, with whom Corey wrote a book, the Secretary of Defense, they have, I think, a much a better understanding of Thucydides. And uh, I don't see in Thucydides any uh, sense of inevitability about the war, as I say. I think if you look at that phrase that gets quoted over and over that made the war inevitable, it's hyperbole, exaggeration for the purpose of emphasis. In fact, for doing the book, I went back to recover my my, uh, ancient Greek, which I studied when I was in college and which it's still lousy. But in any case, if I have a side-by-side, <laughs> I can do translation. And basically, if you look at the way he uses uh, inevitable or forced in other settings, he just means very likely. So it would be like if in a tennis game we describe, you know, a forced error. The answer is under those circumstances, an error is much more likely but not inevitable. And I think on Thucydide, on on Pericles, maybe Corey and I differ slightly but – and I'd have to go back and look at it because I hadn't looked at the, at the text. But I think by the time Pericles is arguing that war is inevitable and so better now than later, he's already decided we're going to – this is going to get us into a war and this is a rationalization or justification for the war more than a than a motive. Like in our case here – after uh, Bush had decided to go to war with Saddam, uh, people began to exaggerate the nuclear dimension of things in order to justify it, not not as a motivation.
1: So, Graham, you don't listen in probably to every episode of Deep State Radio, although you really should. Everybody should. But I've heard some.
2: <laughs> you've heard. And some. I like them.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, they're they're very it's very high quality. And as you may have picked up in the shows that you've listened to, Rosa is our prophet of doom she takes the bleakest attitude towards almost everything from the weather to the future of mankind. And Rosa, as you listen to this, 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 the, this sort of set of theses that suggest that conflict with China, between the U.S. and China, uh, is, is something, uh, is at least an idea we must contend with, if not absolutely inevitable. Um, how does that – Naturally,
3: s- I find this very appealing, David. Yeah, I was, that's what I was thinking. I was thinking probably <laughs> – I
2: mean,
3: No, I, so, so I have to start by saying that that I'm embarrassed to say that my understanding of uh, Pericles was formed primarily through a teenage affection for Mary Renault's fiction uh, and I haven't read Thucydides since I was I have a college to say, student. That's- Pretty nerdy. That too, is pretty nerdy I too. Yeah. I admit, um, but although Graham is inspiring me to go and reread Thucydides, which I cannot read in the original Greek, unfortunately, but but no, I, I actually take Graham to be saying something that that is an extremely important, regardless of whether Graham, you're you're right on the history, which I can't evaluate, and I'm I'm perfectly happy to. Assume that you are, but but even if you were wrong on the history, it strikes me that what you come out with in terms of in terms of lessons for us to be thinking about today uh, are, are are valid, notwithstanding. Which is that it, it's hard to dispute the notion that when you have uh, uh, a rising power, uh, that that creates a very destabilizing moment where there that is fraught with danger. It's hard to dispute the idea that historically speaking, when we've seen that in the past. Uh, it's It's often led to inadvertent escalation, miscalculations, and bad things happening, and that we're and that we're clearly at another such moment so so I you know even with without really feeling that I have the ability to to weigh in much on the uh historical parallels or or the analysis of Thucydides himself, it seems to me that we're that where Graham comes out uh, in terms of saying, you know it's it's not inevitable. It, the conflict is certainly not inevitable, but but there's a, an enormous danger. This is a moment of enormous danger that requires great care. That that seems right. I mean unfortunately, uh, you know, keeping with my generally apocalyptic leanings, uh, I don't feel particularly good about the likelihood that anyone in the current White House is going to take any of Graham's various lessons to heart uh, because the the degree, of, the degree of thoughtfulness and care – Required to avoid slipping into conflict is is enormous, and and obviously thoughtfulness and care are not things that appear to be in in great supply at the moment in the White House.
2: So said, so basically, so. if you yeah okay, go ahead. So Rosa, I like I like the point, and I think that 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 uh, if we ask ourselves actually, because the phenomenon that I'm interested in exploring and that I think Thucydides captured in his insight about the trap is is if you look at dominance hierarchies in animals, chimpanzees, if you look at family relations in which a kid that's shorter becomes taller than the, the kid that used to be the big kid or the uncle becomes now the big guy in the family, the phenomenon in which a Or if we look in the valley, in Silicon Valley, you have a disruptive upstart and an incumbent. So they're very predictable behaviors of a rising power who says, I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I deserve more say, I deserve more sway. The current arrangements which are in place, which were made before I was even here, before my interests were taken into account, need to adjust. And the ruling power, looking at this same situation, says, wait a minute, the current status quo is great. It's actually provided an environment for everybody that's made everybody have opportunities. How did you even grow up to be big and strong? It was in the environment that I created. So you should actually help share the responsibility for sustaining that. And I think that dynamic, it, one can you know feel intuitively as well as observe. So from a Chinese, I was in, out in Beijing three weeks ago talking about Thucydides Trap, the people in the government extremely interested in the question how to avoid. So from their perspective, looking out, they see the American Navy as the arbiter of events of the South China Sea. That seems to them to be anomalous. South China Sea is one of them pointed out, at the, look at what, the, what it's called on the map. It's called South China Sea. In fact, in the book, I have a section called China Seas, China Seas. So they think this is their sea. They think this looks like the Caribbean. Looks to Americans, and I think that, under understandably, as they get bigger and stronger, they're pushing at pushing us out of there if they can. So that's why currently we basically operate mostly behind the first island chain for scenarios. And I think they'll continue pushing and adapt. So now the question is, under those circumstances, take a North Korea. So North Korea decides, let's just continue testing so that we can threaten the American homeland. We look and say, absolutely not, you can't do that. If we end up attacking North Korea to prevent it, acquiring the capability to attack the American homeland, what the likelihood that ends in a war between the US and China? Certainly not zero, certainly not zero. So I think basically it's under these conditions, it becomes more likely that third party actions or these, these inconsequential uh, uh, external events. Marginal spats, as I think uh, uh, Corey called them, uh, end up triggering something that nobody wants. And so I, I think what you would wish is that we would have very adult com- conversations between both Americans and Chinese at a high level about how we can avoid and escape this. And that doesn't say where we adjust or accommodate and where we resist. Those are. That those become the you know much more specific items. The main thing I'm worried about is stumbling into something that by mistake. Well, Corey, I know
1: you share that concern.
0: <laughs> I I do, and uh, but it seems to me that the notion that states stumble into war with nobody intending it, right? This is Barbara Tuchman's great thesis from March of Folly. I find unpersuasive and Thucydides would find unpersuasive, right? Athens doesn't stumble into war with Sparta. They choose it and they choose it because they think they're going to win and they think their interests are going to be advanced. So I think Jeffrey Blaney, the great Australian political scientist, is a better guide to this, right? Wars aren't car crashes. They're a choose, they're choices. Um, and so, A lot of the, in the book I find some of Graham's recommendations to go further than the description that he just made, right, that of course we need to acknowledge China's rise, of course we need to be working with them to try and make sure there aren't misunderstandings to find common ground where we can find it, but I actually think the United States is pretty good at that. We managed to do it well with Germany. We managed to do it well with Japan. Um, I think we're doing it reasonably well with China. But I wouldn't be so, I wouldn't want to go so far as to sacrifice primacy in the Western Pacific in order to uh, reduce the risk of war with China. Because if you think allowing the South China Sea to be China's Caribbean, that that will be enough to prevent war with China. That is that they won't have appetite for anything else. I think it's probably, certainly it would have been a misreading of the United States in 1895, and I think it's a misreading of China now. I think we and the Chinese need to need to work out a balance of what rules we're gonna change in order to accommodate their interests and where we are gonna hold a line because we and our allies have continuing interests in preserving the existing order and not letting the Chinese uh, chip away at it and in not um, deluding ourselves to believe that they'll just stop at the South China Sea because we wouldn't have when we were a rising power. You know, so Greg, I, 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 let me I,
2: let me agree and disagree. Yeah, I agree completely that basically accommodating China and expecting that enough is enough is a would be a big mistake. In the book, though, be clear, I do not recommend sacrificing primacy in Western Pacific or adapting in one particular way or another. What I recommend is first that we recognize that the current strategy that we followed, both under Republican and Democratic administrations. Of so called engage but hedge is basically just gone with the flow. Whatever happens, happens. That's it. And whatever we do, we either call it engage or hedge. I think it's not been successful over these 25 years since the end of the Cold War. But secondly, that in thinking about how to adapt and adjust, we recognize the danger that's created, that's inherent in the structural situation, and therefore become much more imaginative about where we will adapt or adjust, how we will try to build and sustain which alliances that can be sustained, how we will uh, try to agree with rules of the road for some period of time. Because I think we should recognize China is serious, serious about becoming the predominant power in in the Western Pacific in the foreseeable future. That's what they want. If we are determined to prevent that, the current strategy will not do it. Well, let
1: me, let me turn a question here to Rosa, and then it will open out. But, you know, I mean, I just want to introduce into this very rational, thoughtful, citation-filled discussion the notion of Donald Trump, who probably as far as— More in as common
3: he, with Grover the Muppet than Grover Cleveland.
1: Certainly. And who thinks Greece is something his sons use in their hair— or possibly what you do to the palm of a politician you're trying to buy off, it's not necessarily a country. And certainly ancient Greece is completely beyond him. And these theories of rational behavior of countries come a cropper when you end up with leaders who are unaware of consequences or history. And the notion that Graham posits that you know we accidentally do something with North Korea— that throws us into conflict with China that we hadn't really thought out, seems possible even with the access of adults that are supposedly around Trump. Uh, and in fact, you know, it happens throughout history, and we could probably come up with 16 examples of wars through history uh, that were actually created by accident. World War I comes to mind.
3: There was a great headline uh, for peace in foreign policy uh, a, f- a few months back. Uh, Something along the lines of Donald Trump making the great man theory of history great again. Uh, no, and I, I think that's the <laughs> open. <laughs> it's the open question, right? I, I mean, for for years we've all had debates about usually starring whoever happens to be the leader of Iran or North Korea. Generally speaking. Uh, sometimes Iraq and Saddam Hussein's period. Uh, we've all had these conversations in which we say, "Well, you know, is, but but is so and so a rational actor?" And we wonder whether so and so is really crazy, and whether all of our theories about deterrence and realism uh, hold any sway if you if you have an actor uh, who is actually just nuts. Uh, And and we're now that guy or collectively speaking, you know, the U.S., Donald Trump specifically uh, is that guy about whom presumably, you know, presumably the North Koreans are sitting there scratching their heads right now and saying, yes, but the question is, is Donald Trump a rational actor? Uh, you know, I, I, um, no, I, I suspect that they are, right? I mean um, – If they
1: Pyongyang Council on Foreign right, Relations. The they're having yeah.
3: learned discussions about, about you know, yes, but don't all of our calculations come to naught if, in fact, Donald Trump is not a rational actor as, as indeed it is seems increasingly likely uh, we are forced to conclude that he is not. Um, so, no, I, I – I, you know, I, we all continue to cling to the axis of adults' fantasy – and and may you know may it yet come true? We we certainly hope so, um, because I because I do think that the greatest danger in terms of U.S. China relationships uh, is less an inadvertent miscalculation on the part of on the part of China, and more a crazy miscalculation on the on the part of uh, Donald Trump. Corey, um, so.
0: Uh, Yes, I do think the Council on Foreign Relations in Pyongyang ought to be worried that we have actually managed to flip the tables on them. Diabolically clever. (laughs) Right. Their asymmetric advantage of a completely irrational, dangerous leader. And wow, the United States managed to play that hand, too. (laughs) (laughs) I... I, however, am um, <laughs> am not that – I am not as worried as most other national security analysts are about war with North Korea for two reasons. First, uh, my theory of the case is that the North Korean government is actually principally concerned about regime survival. And I don't believe that they – are irrational enough to think that any war with the United States concludes with the regime remaining in power. So I, I think they are on a rational course to try and get across the nuclear threshold and to being a nuclear possessor that could uh, attack the United States as fast as possible because right now they're straddling a barbed wire fence and that seldom ends well for anyone. Uh, And in the case of of President Trump, I do think the main restraint on American uh, aspirations to solve the North Korean nuclear threat are the fact that even if we could carry out an exquisite military attack that identified all of their nuclear weapons, mobile and stationary, and in the space of two hours could destroy those 8,000 artillery tubes that are looking down the barrel to Seoul, South Korea even if we could do that perfectly there are probably still 300 dead South Koreans in those first two hours and I can't see any American government even Donald Trump's government being reckless enough to put that many South Koreans at risk in order on the hopes that you could manage the North Korean nuclear
1: threat. Graham, we just have a couple of minutes here, so I'm going to give you the last word.
2: Well, I don't know about the last word, but I'd say uh, that I wish Corey's analysis was right. But in 1994, I was at the Pentagon as an assistant secretary. Bill Perry was the secretary of defense. Ash was an assistant secretary. Shali was the chairman. We were in favor of attacking North Korea then recognizing that the cost might be a uh, hundred or several hundred thousand people killed in Seoul, and maybe even a second Korean War. I still haven't changed my view about that. So that may have been crazy, but that was my view then. Actually, Ash and Bill Perry argued in a 2006, so this is now, once the change, the situation has changed a lot, op-ed publicly, as they were arguing privately, that we should attack the ICBM on the – the North Korean ICBM on the launch pad rather than let it launch. So there have been people serious about attacking North Korea, God forbid. Secondly, I think for Trump, uh, allowing North Korea to have the ability to strike the American homeland with nuclear weapons, he said, is unacceptable. Now I think when he thinks about what the alternative is, namely we attack their launch pads, that prevents them testing. But what do they do to Seoul? And it goes through the consequences. If I listen to Secretary of Defense Madison's testimony, he thinks it's going to be an attack on Seoul. And that's going to run a high risk of a second Korean war. And that's going to be horrific. So we're at the choice between things that are horrific and and genuinely catastrophic. I think this is going to play out over the next several months. And I would say it's like a Cuban missile crisis in slow motion. And I don't feel comfortable where it's going to come out.
1: Well, I think that's a, a, a profoundly important insight and a, and a uh, very thought-provoking place to end uh, this discussion. Many people do, by the way, describe this as a slow-motion crisis. I would point out that the speed with which North Korea is acquiring new capabilities is faster than it's ever been, and so while it may be slow motion, um, uh, it's it's happening. F- quicker than some of us are 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 in in the, in the administration are responding to. Uh, I also think that the fact that this discussion of China and the Thucydides trap ends with a discussion of the Koreas underscores Graham's earlier point. You can't for the next year or two see the future of the US-China relationship without looking at it through the lens of North Korea and the situation there is much more dire and much more fraught with danger uh, than um, many uh, either acknowledge or are able to see because we're so caught up in our discussions of political chaos in Washington. Graham Allison's book is called Destined for War. Can America and China Escape Thucydides' Trap? It is a very, very important book to read carefully. Uh, It is also a book that is better when taken uh, in the context of thoughtful analysis uh, and historical knowledge. So read Thucydides, as Graham suggests. Turn to the sources that Corey suggests in her uh, uh, appreciation for the book. Uh, and I know she has the greatest respect for Graham Allison, as do each of us. Uh, and she does. I, I know that. You've said that before, even behind Graham's back. Um, and, and for all of you who are out there listening to Deep State Radio, uh, who came expecting a cage match, you got, I think, exactly what you came for, which is a thoughtful discussion on a really important subject from – a couple of really smart people, uh, and Rosa. <laughs> guess, wait a no, minute. No, wait a minute. I didn't mean it that way. David. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't mean it Just that way. because I don't know. Oh, just out.
3: because I can't read ancient <laughs> Greek.
1: Yeah, well, you know, you better go work on that. No. <laughs> Thank you, Rosa, for being splendid as always. Thank you, Corey, for being splendid as always. Thank you, Graham, for joining us. We hope you will join us again. This is David Rothkoff for Deep State Radio. Please join us again, folks. Have your friends listen. Things are going great for Deep State Radio. The audience is growing weekly. We want them to join in with all of us. Talk to you again soon. Thanks, guys.